Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad Anil Polat. We have a very interesting episode for you today, a Halloween episode. So I've got five spooky stories for you that I'm going to tell you. And they're not just spooky, they are based in reality. Ooh. But before we get into that, a couple of things that I want to let you know about. One is I'm currently running a giveaway that I'm really excited about. So Trove, who make a variety of slim wallets, I've reviewed those on the YouTube channel. If you have not seen those, they're up there, but maybe you have seen those. We've collaborated to come up with a Fox Nomad branded slim wallet. It looks pretty sick, I gotta say. Um, Black on black, got the logo on there, and overall just a great slim wallet. So if you're looking for a slim wallet, you've been searching for one, you're looking for a gift, this one I think is, uh, is a really nice one that you can potentially win. And all you have to do to enter is be sure that you are subscribed to Fox Nomad on YouTube and that you're following on Instagram at Fox Nomad. Really simple, that's all you have to do. If you are subscribed and following on Instagram, you're already entered to win the uh, the Trove wallet. And if you wanna check it out, I posted it on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. So if you wanna see a mock-up of what the wallet looks like, um, you can head over there. All right. Uh, a couple other things, tech news, tech things are heating up, so it's getting really busy around here. My personal wish list is the uh, new M1 MacBook Pro Max, which I'm waiting for, but there is a chip shortage, so it might be like a month or five to six weeks uh, from my order to get those in. Really excited about it, a couple of things I like about it, I'm, I'm a little worried about the notch, but... It's rare that we get a laptop upgrade from one year to the next in a line of laptops and it's twice as fast, which seems to be the case. So all the benchmarks are showing that. All the reviews so far have shown that the new M1 Macs are um, twice as fast. So that is going to be exciting compared to my M1 MacBook Air versus the regular one last year. The, the, the jump was just so huge i'm really excited it's gonna it's gonna make make uh, editing a lot more fun so be sure to check that out also got an iphone 13 and 12 and 11 and i'm running a big test against all of them so if you want to check that out the unboxing is live on youtube right now and then the uh the full review of the iphones is coming up um let's see a couple of videos from Pakistan, and then uh, now we're going to be switching over to Alaska. I'm putting together some travel plans at the moment, which are going to be very last minute. Uh, I may be at location the next time that uh, that the podcast goes out. And last thing that I want to share with you is a big, big shout out to friend of the show and previous guest, Rich Fresh. So Fresh recently posted this uh, a couple days ago on his Instagram, and he said that him and his brother... Uh, who've been working on Henry Masks. So I, I really hope you've listened to that episode because it is one of my favorite episodes, one of my favorite interviews. It's just a, an overall amazing story, but it is so inspirational. Um, man, it, it was just a great episode. So he just wrote on his Instagram that October 22nd is now officially Rich Fresh Day in Memphis and Henry Day in Shelby County. Fresh is from Memphis and he writes, quote, what an honor. We love Memphis. Even though we're in L.A. now, it's the Memphis experience and mentality driving it, uh, driving us to these billions. So really excited to see that um, and uh, really, really, uh, really awesome. So uh, if you haven't listened to that interview, be sure to check it out. And uh, we've got some other guests lined up for the rest of the season. 
But right now, we've got some scary stories. I want to talk to you about a couple of these that I have handpicked, which, which uh, came to my attention. Let's start, let's start with a uh, simple one. This one is called The Mysterious Underground Shell Grotto of Kent, England. By the way, all of these places that I'm going to be talking about are places that you can actually visit. So if you want to make some travel plans based around Halloween or spooky things or just cool little mysteries, then you can visit these places. So this one is called the Margate Shell Grotto. It's in Kent, England, and it is a really interesting and unique place. Um, I almost vis- wish this version, this episode of the podcast were video because I'd really love to show you. But if you can Google what this place looks like. It is really fascinating. So let me tell you about this story. So it goes back to 1835. James Newlove and his son Joshua were digging around for a duck pond when they struck upon an underground cavern. When they looked, they realized they weren't the first people to have discovered this space. It was lined with 4.6 million, was later counted, 4.6 million shells from cockles, whelks, oysters, mussels, and other mollusks and glued to the wall. And if you could see the photos of this place, it has just shells. I mean, it is like an amazing underground cavern with an incredible amount of shells. Like just, it's like, uh, imagine like, like a little painting, you know, where it's completely covered in shells and now just scale that up into a huge underground cavern. Uh, So the shells adorn the winding tunnels and form intricate and colorful patterns Some are abstract, while others are laid out in shapes of animals like birds and reptiles. The space itself covers 2,000 feet with an altar room at one end of the serpentine passage and an underground rotunda on the others. So after a few years upon stumbling upon the grotto, James Newlove opened it to the public. While the walls could be radiocarbon dated, according to Grotto's website, we have been advised by experts in this field that we would need to provide a number of samples to mitigate against dating uh, Victorian or later repair, and the cost is very high. The lack of radiocarbon dating and the fact that the land above it has never been part of a large estate make the origins of the site a mystery. Experts don't know exactly how it was built. Analysis of the mortar beneath the shells point to also a puzzling fish-based substance. Very interesting. Some people think that the masterpiece was built by an ancient civilization, The designs have been described as looking vaguely Egyptian, Roman, Indian, and Phoenician. Well, that's a a pretty broad broad stroke of of cultures there. Um, Other credits groups like the mystics or Templars. And another possible explanation is that the grotto was the project of an eccentric Victorian aristocrat, although no names are given. So let's see, follies or decorative structures that serve no practical purpose were a fashionable way to flaunt wealth during the Regency and Victorian areas, but the question of why someone would build something so elaborate beneath an empty pasture land remains unanswered. Now, if you want to see the Margate Shell Grotto, you can visit. It costs about $6.20 or four, uh, 4.5 British pounds, and you can tour the tunnels and see the nautical artwork up close. And you won't find out any more answers when you get there, but it is an interesting place to visit if you happen to be near or around Kent, England. I think it's a great story. It's a site that I had never heard of. And uh, looking at the designs, it looks really, really cool. So another place to add to your, uh, to your possible England travel destinations. Now let's go from underground to 
on ground from potentially visitors who are coming from above ground. So this one is very interesting, especially if you've seen the documentary called The Phenomena. I highly recommend that you check that out. It's on Netflix. Um, it is probably the best, most thought-provoking documentary on UFOs you will ever see. It is. It has Navy pilots, radar images. It's very compelling. It, it really does make you wonder. Interviews with the the former head of the CIA. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in there. It's not um, one of those cheesy ones, but this is a story from that documentary. And when you go into it, it gets a little bit weird. So on April 24th in 1964, in the small town of Socorro, New Mexico, police officer Lonnie Zamora spotted a local teenager speeding through town. Officer Zamora followed the teenager to the edge of Socorro and out into the desert. Zamora, though, had no idea what a strange twist his life was about to take. He says, I could see a white object to my left. I thought it was a turned over car. When I got up to the top of the mesa there, I looked down and I saw this big white object on the ground. I thought I could see something around the craft and they were figures. It looked like they were walking around the craft. So according to this police officer, there were also red markings on the hull. So it's a vertical arrow with a horizontal line beneath it and a crest-shaped line above it. You can see drawings of this online, but that's basically what it looks like. So he tried to radio police headquarters, but wasn't able to break through the heavy static. After hearing two metallic sounds, like doors clanging shut, he said he noticed that the small figures were gone. I saw this flame come up from underneath it, and then I ran back to the car. It went up about 20 or 30 feet in the air, and it just stayed there for a while. And then finally, it took off slowly to the west. At first, you know, after I got to my senses, I said, did I see it or didn't I, you know? What happened, you know? Now, once the radio became static-free, he called his old friend Sergeant Sam Chavez of the New Mexico State Police and told him to hurry to the site. And his partner said, I could tell that Lonnie was excited and probably scared. Lonnie Zamora, he's very dependable, honest type of person. He's not one to create or make stories or build things up or make it exciting or anything like that. So when Sam arrived, he and Lonnie noticed what looked like landing marks on the ground. We found some indentation on the ground where this thing had landed, and the marks on the ground were 9 inches deep, 8 inches long, and 9 inches wide. I started looking for tracks, human tracks. The only thing I found were impressions on the ground that were made by a perfect circle. But I found no human tracks, no shoe prints. U.S. Army officials at the nearby White Sands Missile Range sent Captain Richard T. Holder to investigate, and he says, my first impression that it was something from the range that needed possible help, you know, first aid, attention, or at best security. The more I got into it, the less, I, less convinced I was that that was the case. He also noticed the unusual marks left in the sand and the brush burned to a crisp only to one side. Everything we saw seemed to support the story that officers are more recounted, Nothing gave me the slightest hint that this was a hoax or cooked up for fame or fortune. Now, after their investigation, the Air Force agreed that Lonnie saw something but insisted it must have been a secret military aircraft. UFO expert and author Jerome Clark and said the official explanation doesn't hold water. They were never able to find any such evidence of anything being tested at the time. And in fact, even today, not an iota of evidence has emerged to support the claim. Nevertheless, the Air Force line on the case is that this is a credible witness. He clearly saw some kind of structured flying vehicle and that it must have been something that we built even if we can't find it anywhere. 
Now, what's really interesting about this is after you know the investigation, Zamora would never talk about this incident again. He didn't want it brought up. His wife even said that he never talked about it and that he was clearly different after seeing what he saw. So something he saw shook him that much um, that it changed his temperament and that he was never the same after, which is very interesting. A lesser known sort of UFO site What's interesting, too, about it, if you go to the official government site of the city of Socorro, you can find the exact landing site. You can find the coordinates, and you can drive out and go visit this place. So if you want to do some UFO hunting, you can find it on the map. The coordinates are right there on the city of Socorro, New Mexico website. It's called the Socorro UFO Landing. So there you go. It's on the Fairgrounds Road, off Fairgrounds Road, if you want to visit. Now that we've talked about potential aliens and, and visitors from another planet. Let's talk about visitors from another another dimension, another realm, another plane of reality. Well, there's a place where you can find one, and it's so common that there's even a guest book for sightings. Now, this is one I wish I had known about when I was in Anchorage a couple of weeks ago because it is a haunted historic hotel in Alaska. It's, in fact, the only historic hotel in Anchorage. So this is a building that has recently celebrated 100 years of being in business, and it even survived the 1964 Good Friday earthquake, and a lot of creepiness started happening apparently after that. There have been so many ghost sightings that this hotel now keeps a log at the front desk to document all of the eerie experiences. Now, this place was built in 1916, and the sightings of ghosts have been showing up since about 1920. There are three ghosts, apparently, that people have seen. It survived a 9.2 magnitude earthquake that is said to be the most powerful recorded to date in North American history and the second most powerful earthquake in the world. In Anchorage alone, there were countless houses, buildings, streets, and various forms of infrastructure that were completely destroyed but the downtown Anchorage Hotel survived in truly resilient fashion. And it is a beautiful-looking hotel, very classic. So if you can see the inside, uh, it's got this sort of almost Victorian design. It, it has this old-timey design. The furniture looks old in the lobby, um, but it's been around for a while, and they're, they're clearly keeping that aesthetic. From the outside, like a lot of things in Anchorage, like a lot of buildings, it's very squared off, not too high. It's, it looks like it's only got about two floors. In 2016, it had its 100 years of service. It is considered a diamond-in-the-rough property located in the heart of downtown and is the only historic hotel in Alaska's largest city of Anchorage. Now, this hotel was set up during the gold rush days, and a lot of the spirits that have been seen are thought to be from that time period. So, three of the ghosts, like I mentioned, let's talk about them. In 1916, the hotel was first opened by Frank Reed. He had a young son that would go down to the Alaska Railroad Terminal during the day to pick up luggage for guests arriving at the hotel. Today, the hotel has three ghosts, and one of them is a little boy. The first chief police of Anchorage is also another ghost that is said to be living in the hotel and making frequent appearances at night. He was shot during the Prohibition days with his own gun in the alleyway by the hotel. He was then dragged into the hotel to recover, but quickly passed away. The third ghost that is said to make frequent appearances at the hotel is a bride. Her tall, thin silhouette will randomly appear in dark hallways and mirrors throughout the hotel. Rumor has it that guests have reported frequent spirit sightings in rooms 215, 217, 
202 and 205. In fact, sightings of ghosts at the hotel are so frequent that there is a logbook at the front desk. A very interesting place to stay if you're in Anchorage, Alaska. Next time I'm in Anchorage, I'm definitely staying here. I'm definitely staying in one of those rooms and I'm definitely gonna have the cameras rolling because uh, if anybody's getting a, uh, a ghost video, it's gonna be me. So that's a place you can stay, it's still open. Uh, don't know what the rates are. I should have looked that up. That would have been interesting. But let me do some editing magic and find out real quick. All right, so I'm back and it looks like the rooms start at about $159 per night. So that that's that's what it'll cost you to potentially see a ghost in your room. So there you go. All right, now that we've talked a little bit about hauntings, I want to return to another UFO sighting. But this one, this one will really blow your mind. So this is known as the Rua UFO incident. This is a sighting that happened in Rua, Zimbabwe. But it's not just a sighting, because in this encounter, 62 students at the aerial school between age 6 and 12 claimed that they saw one or more silver craft descend from the sky and land on a field near their school. One of the creatures, dressed in all black, then approached the children and telepathically communicated to them with an environmental theme. This was studied by a Harvard psychologist who interviewed these students and their videos um, can be found. You can find these stories and they've all maintained their story now. We're like 30 years later because this happened September 16, 1994. None of the stories have changed and there are some really compelling pieces to this story that make you wonder if this actually, actually happened. Now, it started on, like I said, September 16, 1994 when the kids were outside on their morning break. Uh, an adult faculty, the adult faculty at the school were inside having a meeting and the entire incident lasted about 15 minutes. When children returned to class, they told teachers what they had seen but were dismissed. They returned home and told their parents. Many of the parents came to school next day to discuss what happened with the faculty. The sighting was reported on ZBC radio uh, where Cynthia Hind learned about it. She visited the school next day and interviewed the children and asked them to draw pictures of what they seen, what they had seen. She reported that all the children had told her the exact same story. The BBC's correspondent in Zimbabwe, Tim Leach, visited the school on the 19th, which is three days later, to film interviews with the pupils, staff, and Hint. After investigating the incident, Leach claimed, I could handle war zones, but I could not handle this. In November of that year, two, two months later, Harvard University professor of psychiatry, John Mack, visited the school to interview the witnesses. Throughout the 1990s, Mack had investigated UFO sightings and had a particular interest in the alien abduction phenomena. In 1994, the dean of Harvard Medical School, Daniel C. Uh, Tosten, appointed a committee of peers to confidentially review Mack's clinical care and clinical investigation of the people who had shared their alien encounters with him. Some of their, those cases were in Mack's book, uh, Abduction. Um, but the issue was that Mack had communicated to these people that their experience may have been real. After about 14 months, Harvard issued a statement saying that the dean had reaffirmed Dr. Mack's academic freedom to study what he wishes and to state his opinions without impediment, concluding Dr. Mack remains a member in good standing of Harvard Faculty of Medicine. So they interviewed these 62 kids, and not all of them uh, at the school claimed a sighting. The basic details of the sighting were quite consistent, although not all the details were. One or more silver objects, usually described as disks, appeared in the sky, then they floated down to a field of brush and small trees outside the property. Between one and four creatures with big eyes dressed in all black exited the craft and approached the children. 
At this point, many of the children ran, but some of the older pupils stayed and watched the approach. According to Max's interviews, the creature or creatures were then telepathically communicating with the children an environmental message before returning to the craft and flying away. According to Dunning, this telepathic message of the story was not included in Hind or Leach's reports, only Max, although Hind reported it later. In Max's interviews, one fifth grader tells how he was warned about, quote, something is going to happen and that pollution mustn't be. An 11-year-old girl told Mac, I think they want people to know that we're actually making harm on this world and we mustn't get too technologied, I think she's trying to say. One child said that he was told the world would end because we are not taking care of the planet. The children were adamant that they had not seen a plane and he noted that the different cultural background of the children gave rise to different interpretations of what they had seen. They did not all believe that they had seen extraterrestrials. Some of the children thought they saw what are known as Tikoloshes, creatures of Shanoa and uh, Ned Bele folklore, this local folklore. In the aftermath, in June 2021, an episode of BBC's Witness History described the event as one of the most significant ev- uh, events in UFO history. And uh, to this day, UFO, UFOlogists, UFOlogists continue to cite this case as providing compelling evidence of extraterrestrial visits to Earth. Skeptics have dismissed the case as one of mass hysteria or even a prank. Now, if you have seen documentaries on this, you know that there are some staff who have remained anonymous for all this time. They have given a single recorded interview as part of a documentary called The Phenomena on Netflix, and they never have been identified. They don't want to be identified. They're just worried about what people will think of them. But they said that they saw what the children saw. This is a staff member who is still, still working at the school and maintains that they don't want fame. They don't want notoriety. They just want to know that what the children saw is what he also or she also saw. Very, very fascinating. And there are interviews with these kids from a couple, these kids now who are adults, um, from a couple of years ago, just like two or three years ago, and they all recount the same story. None of the stories have changed. It's very interesting. In 2014, Mailing Guardian spoke to one of the witnesses who said she fears that the creatures will return and that she can sense when they are back in the atmosphere. In 2016, witness Emily Trim exhibited paintings that she described as a manifestation of the messages she received from the beings that day. In June 2021, Barstool sports writer Za spoke in an interview about being a pupil at Ariel that day. He recounted that he saw a bright light come down from the skies and aliens exit it. Other witnesses interviewed for the 2020 documentary, The Phenomenon, spoke about how the experience affected them. Also worth noting that the Air Force, the local Air Force, and local people in other parts around Rua in the days leading up to this uh, event had uh, made reports of UFOs. There were uh, sightings by the Air Force radars, uh, trackings of things that they could not identify in the days leading up to this. Some of the residents of this area had also reported sightings to the local police, and those were reported to local air traffic control in days leading up to this. So very interesting, a very, very uh, one of those events that does not have a simple explanation. And I think it's one of those that makes you think. Either way, it is a mystery and a little bit potentially Potentially creepy. This one, though, 
Ah, this one is a great one. This one is a classic. Now, this one comes from Fairfax, Virginia. It is the actual case of something that happened, but we don't really know all the details. And if you live in Washington, D.C., if you live in the Northern Virginia area, you've definitely heard of this. This is called Fairfax Bunny Man. Someone should ask Dave Grohl about that because uh, he went to, he grew up in Dave Grohl and um, Sandra Bullock. You can ask them. I'm sure they've heard about this because they grew up in this area. This comes from Fairfax County. It's a county right outside of Washington, D.C. This comes from Fairfax in Fairfax County, which is like, a well, with traffic, I don't know, but it's like 10 miles away from D.C. So it's in Northern Virginia, and this is an urban legend, and there's some truth to this one. So get ready to get creeped out. Let's go. All right. So what makes this one so weird is that there are several variations of the urban legend and it is called The True Story of the Bunny Man. So a creepy guy on Halloween dressed oddly, throwing hatchets at people. It's just too bizarre to be possibly true, says Fairfax County archivist Brian Connolly. But it is. So for four decades, the legend of the Bunny Man has captivated Northern Virginia fear seekers. Connolly first heard the tale when he was in the area as a youngster in the 1970s. It showed up in a 1973 University of Maryland undergrads college paper it has been told and retold by local teens for years while the legend has evolved and changed throughout the years it follows these lines in the early 20th century deep in the woods that divided the city of clifton from fairfax station there was an asylum for the insane at some point the asylum closed and the residents were piled into a bus bound for lorton prison on the way there the bus swerved and crashed many of the convicts escaped but were caught except for one Douglas Griffin. While searching for him, authorities found a trail of half-eaten gutted bunnies with many hanging from what was then called the Fairfax Station Bridge. For months, the police searched for Griffin, but he was never found. Then, on Halloween night, several teens were hanging out under the bridge, and at the stroke of midnight, they were attacked. But the next morning, they were found hanging from the bridge, gutted like bunnies. To this day, it is said that if you are at Bunny Man Bridge at midnight on Halloween, you will too meet the fate of those teens and rabbits. Now, a couple of things before we get into the rest of the story, because there, there's more. This uh, bridge that we're talking about, the Fairfax Station Bridge, is like just like a little walking bridge, just like a little walking bridge under a railroad. It's not, it's not like a big bridge. It's, it's pretty tiny. It's like a little, like a walking path, and then you just go under this really small bridge. It's, it's not very large. Um, and you can, I don't know if they still do it, but you can definitely bet, believe that kids go there at Halloween at midnight. That, that was definitely a thing in the eighties and nineties in Northern Virginia. That's what you did if you were a kid, uh, going to middle school or high school. So what Conley says, what he thinks is the most widely version known of this story. He says, this follows a narrative from Tim Forbes. Uh, he basically cites historical inaccuracies for, inaccuracies for why this is probably false. It says that Lorton Prison wasn't opened until 1916. There's no Fairfax court record of a Douglas Griffin. And the old Clifton Library, where the author uh, tells you know people where all this happened, never really existed. But a constant trickle of bunny man questions have re-engaged his interest in the story. He said, I got tired of saying I don't know. And he took a nearly a decade of research. 
and in 2002 he published what is considered to be the foremost paper on the subject. What he discovered is that the real story is even more bizarre than the legend. And by the way, that paper is on the Fairfax County government website. You can read the paper. It's published on the official site for the county. So now let's get into what really happened. On October 18th in 1970, a Washington Post reporter reported that Air Force Academy cadet Robert Bennett and his fiancée were sitting in a car on the 5400 block of Guinea Road in Fairfax around midnight near Bennett's uncle's house when a man dressed in a white suit with long bunny ears appeared. He yelled at the couple that they were on private property and that he had their tag number. Then he threw a wooden-handled hatchet through the front of the car. Luckily, neither of them were hurt. Two weeks later, the bunny man showed up again about a block away from the original sighting according to a October 31st Washington Post article. Private security guard Paul Phillips spotted the man Beast uh, on the front porch of a new but unoccupied house. He was holding an axe. In the piece, Phillips recounts what happened next. I started talking to him, and that's when he started chopping. Taking several swings at a pole on the porch, he threatened Phillips and said, quote, All you people trespass around here. If you don't get out of here, I'm going to bust you on the head. And he continued to dig, so the story goes even further. He tracked down police and investigation reports that confirmed that Fairfax County Police looked for a male in his late teens or early 20s dressed as a bunny but police were unable to turn up anything conclusive writing after a very extensive investigation and all the cases of the same nature, it is still unsubstantiated as to whether there really is or isn't a white rapid. The case is deemed inactive. So Connolly, who's researching this, was also able to track down the couple from that night, who are still married, by the way, so good for them. They didn't particularly want to talk about the 45-year-old incident, but they did confirm that it happened. They shared vivid details, Conley said, as did the aunt who helped them after the incident. Quote, she remembered very clearly combing glass from the shattered glass window out of the girl's hair. To this day, no one knows who the bunny man was or what motivated him. Connolly knows that any theory he has is purely speculation, but he thinks it could be related to an elderly man, a curmudgeon, as he calls it, who owned the property that the couple was supposedly trespassing on. Although the man had died a year or two earlier, maybe a younger family member took up his cause. Perhaps it was just a person who didn't like development in the region and was just going, going rogue at the time. Additionally, if the bunny man was in his early 20s in 1970, then he would still be alive today unless he got careless with his hatchet, says Conley. As of this writing, no one has come forward to admit being the notorious bunny man. Today, the bunny man has taken over actual truth, there was no murder, no asylum for the insane, and not even a bridge, really. Conley thinks that the Fairfax Station Bridge, which Google Maps even now calls the Bunny Man Bridge, was nothing more than a local teen party spot and creepy-looking and potentially dangerous bridge that got incorporated into the story. Even the town of Clifton has now fully embraced legend with t-shirts and haunted Halloween attraction tours of the bridge. So the legend may be horrific, frightening and blood curdling but the truth is just as bizarre quote if there were ever a story that was really ripe to grow and get a little bit strange it has to be the bunny man it is our homegrown urban legend there you go if you are in the washington dc area and you want to go out for a drive in northern virginia or on your way to the shenandoah valley and it's halloween and you want some creepiness 
you too can visit the Bunny Man Bridge. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. A little bit different, a little bit creepy, but still a little bit of travel and a little bit of tech. All kinds of things that that sort of get you in the mood for the the Halloween season. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Um, Thanks for all of your support. Um, Congratulations again, Fresh. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode. If you haven't, by the way, uh, make sure that you have given Fox Nomad Podcast five stars wherever you're listening to this. Don't forget about the giveaway that is running through next Tuesday. So if you want to enter to win the Slim Wallet by Trove, just make sure that you're subscribed on YouTube and Instagram. And the winner will be announced on Twitter on the 3rd, which is next week uh, from the date that, that this podcast goes out. Good luck in that. And I've got like three or four other competitions coming up. So three or four other giveaways coming up. So just, I'm assuming if you're listening to the podcast, you're following in all the other places. But if you're not, make sure you are so that you can get, maybe can win some free stuff. That would be great. Thanks again for listening. Have a great rest of your day. And I'll talk to you in the next episode.